The Magna Carta is a royal charter first drafted in 1215. Essentially a peace treaty, it would go on to form the basis of many justice systems throughout the world. The charter defined a person's right not to be imprisoned, but by the lawful judgment of his peers. But laws in every country continue to evolve, in particular with new technology such as the internet. Therefore, test cases emerge which require changes to our judicial system. In a new series of sporadic episodes over the next few months, we'll look at some of these cases that have brought such changes to our system of law. Welcome back to the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. This is the last episode of 2020, which has been, quite frankly, a bit of a terrible year for most of us. But I hope I've brought you some crumbs of comfort with the emergence of this podcast. Here's hoping we'll all be vaccinated soon and can get back to a normal life. Adolf Beck was born in Norway in 1841 and educated as a chemist. However, he went to sea soon afterwards and moved to England in 1865 and worked as a clerk to a shipping broker. In 1868, he moved to South America where he made a living for a while as a singer and then became a shipbroker and also engaged in buying and selling houses. He soon amassed a small fortune, at one time earning £8,000 as commission for the sale of a Spanish concession in the Galapagos Islands. At the age of 44, he returned to England in 1885 and engaged in various financial schemes, including the investment of a copper mine in Norway. Unfortunately, the mine did not turn a profit, and he poured more money and more money until he had to put the mine up for sale. However, there were no takers and he was reduced to near poverty. He was also in debt to the hotel in Covent Gardens where he lived and had borrowed money from his secretary and he was always chronically short of money now. Nevertheless, he tried to keep up appearances by dressing in a frock coat and a top hat whenever he went out, even though he had become threadbare. On December the 16th, 1895, Beck was stepping out the front door of 135 Victoria Street when a woman blocked his way. She accused him of having tricked her out of two watches and several rings. Beck brushed her aside and crossed the road. But when the woman followed him, he complained to a policeman that he was being followed by a prostitute 
who had accosted him. The woman demanded his arrest, accusing him of swindling her three weeks earlier. The policeman took them both to the nearest police station and the woman identified herself as Ottilie Messenger, unmarried and a language teacher. She alleged that she'd been walking down Victoria Street when Beck approached her, tipping his hat and asked if she was Lady Everton. She said that she was not, but she was impressed by his gentlemanly manners and they struck up conversation. According to her account, he introduced himself as Lord Willoughby and advised her that the flower show that she was heading to was not worth visiting. He said that he knew horticulture because he had gardens in his Lincolnshire estate extensive enough to require six gardeners. Messenger mentioned that she grew chrysanthemums. He asked whether he might be able to see them and she invited him to tea the following day. At her home the next day, he invited her to go to the French Riviera on his yacht. He insisted upon providing her with an elegant wardrobe for the voyage, wrote out a list of items for her and made a cheque for £40 to cover her purchases. He then examined her wristwatch and rings and asked her to let him have them so that he could match their sizes and replace them with more valuable pieces. After he left, she discovered that a second watch was missing. Suspicious, she hurried to the bank to cash the cheque, only to find it was worthless. She'd been swindled and she swore it was Adolf Beck who'd done it. He was promptly arrested. The inspector who was assigned to the case learned in the previous two years, 22 women had been defrauded by a grey-haired gentleman who called himself Lord Wilton de Willoughby and used the same MO as Beck's accuser had described. These women were asked to view a lineup that included Beck along with 10 or 15 men who'd been selected randomly from the street. But because he was the only one with grey hair and a moustache, he was quickly identified by the women as the man who had defrauded them. Beck was charged with 10 misdemeanours and 4 felonies. The felony charges were based on the presumed prior convictions in 1877 when a man named John Smith had been sentenced to 5 years for swindling unattached women using the name Lord Willoughby, writing worthless cheques and taking their jewellery. He had disappeared after his release and it was assumed that Beck and Smith were one and the same. Descriptions of John Smith from prison files were never compared with the current appearance of Adolf Beck. At Beck's committal hearing in late 1895, one of the policemen who had arrested Smith 18 years before was called to testify. PC Ellis Spurl gave his account as follows. In 1877, I was with the Metropolitan Police Reserve. On the 7th of May, 1877, I was present at the Central Criminal Court where the prisoner in the name of John Smith 
was convicted of feloniously stealing earrings and a ring and 11 shillings of Louisa Leonard and was sentenced to five years penal servitude. I produced the certificate of that conviction. The prisoner is that man. There is no doubt whatsoever. I know quite well is what is stake in my answer and I say without doubt he is that man. Beck protested and insisted that he could bring witnesses from South America to prove that he was there in 1877. On the 3rd of March, 1896, Beck was brought to trial at the Old Bailey. The Crown was represented by Horace Edmund Avery, assisted by Guy Stevenson, while the defence was headed by an experienced barrister, Charles Gill, who was assisted by Percival Clark. The judge was Sir Forrest Fulton, who, as a prosecutor, had been responsible for sending John Smith to prison in 1877. The defence's strategy was to argue this was a case of mistaken identity. If they could prove that Beck was in South America at the time when John Smith was committing his crimes and went to prison for them, they could undermine the allegation that Adolf Beck was John Smith. A handwriting expert named Thomas Gurren compared the lists of clothing Smith had given his victims in 1877 to those written in 1894 and 1895, as well as to samples of Beck's handwriting. Gill thought he would have his chance to prove mistaken identity when he cross-examined Gurren. If Gurren testified in court, as he had said previously, that the writing from 1877 was identical to that of 1894, Gill could bring witnesses to show Beck had been in Buenos Aires in 1877. But Avery, the prosecutor, foreseeing this tactic, asked the witness only about the later lists. Gurren said that they had been written by Beck with a disguised hand. Gill then asked Justice Fulton's permission to question Gurren about the lists from 1877 but he ruled, in line with procedure in English courts, that any earlier convictions of the defendants could not be mentioned in court until after the jury had given its verdict. Avery also did not want to call PC Ellis Spurrow to give evidence because his testimony would have opened discussion of the past conviction, thereby allowing Gill the opportunity to cast doubt on Beck's guilt. Without Spurrow's testimony, Avery could still prosecute Beck for the misdemeanours, which did not require proof of prior conviction. He chose not to proceed with the felony charges, despite the fact the prosecution was based wholly on these unstated premise that Adolf Beck and John Smith were the same person. Avery brought Beck's alleged victims into court, and one after another, they pointed to Beck as the swindler. There were, however, occasional moments of doubt. One mentioned that the swindler talked differently from Beck, peppering his speech with Yankee slang. Ottilie Messinger remembered 
The swindler had a scar on the right side of his neck, but was otherwise convinced that Beck was the man. Another testified that his moustache was longer and was waxed. On the 5th of March, 1896, Adolf Beck was found guilty of fraud and was sentenced to seven years of penal servitude at Portland Prison on the Isle of Portland. In prison, he was given John Smith's old prison number, D-523, with the letter W added, indicating a repeat convict. England did not have a court of appeal, but between 1896 and 1901, Beck's solicitor presented ten petitions for re-examination of his case. His requests to see the prison's description of John Smith were repeatedly denied. However, in May 1898, an official at the Home Office looked at the Smith file and saw that Smith was Jewish and thus had been circumcised, while Beck was not. The Home Office asked Sir Forrest Fulton for his opinion on the new evidence. Fulton wrote a minute dated 13th of May, in which he acknowledged that Smith and Beck could not be the same person, but he added that even if Beck was not Smith, he was still the imposter of 1895, and that he viewed the South American alibi with great suspicion. As a result, the letter W was removed from Beck's prison number, but nothing else changed. Beck remained in prison, but George Robert Sims, a journalist who worked for the Daily Mail and had known Beck since his return to England in 1885, wrote an article in the paper emphasising that Beck had been tried on the assumption that he and Smith were the same person, and yet no evidence to support that assumption had been allowed by Judge Fulton. Public opinion was slowly swayed by Sims and others, including Arthur Conan Doyle, to the view that Beck's conviction was unjust. Beck was paroled on July 1901 for good behaviour. On the 22nd of March 1904, a servant by the name of Paulina Scott filed a complaint that a grey-haired, distinguished-looking man had accosted her in the street, paid her compliments and then stolen her jewellery. The inspector that took the complaint was familiar with the Beck case and he assumed that he must be the culprit. So he sent Scott to the restaurant where Beck took his lunch. However, she did not recognise him, but the inspector was undeterred by the woman's uncertainty and set a trap for him. On the 15th of April 1904, as Beck left his flat, Scott ran up to him and accused him of defrauding her of her jewellery. Beck was horrified and denied the charge. Scott repeated her accusations and told him that someone was waiting to arrest him. But he ran away in panic and was caught immediately by the waiting police inspector who arrested him at once. Beck's panicked flight reinforced the inspector's assumption regarding his guilt. He was again put on trial on the 27th of June at the Old Bailey before Sir William Grantham. 
five women identified him and based on this positive identification, he was found guilty by the jury. The judge, however, was dissatisfied about the case and expressed some doubts regarding it. Despite assurances from the Home Office and the police regarding Beck's guilt, he decided to postpone sentencing. Just over a week later, on a routine visit to Tottenham Court Road Police Station on the 7th of July, Inspector John Kane of the Criminal Investigation Department was told of the arrest of a man who tried to swindle some rings from a pair of unemployed actresses that afternoon and had been apprehended in a pawn shop. The detective was of course familiar with the Beck case, having been present at Beck's two trials and he asked for details. The details fitted the usual pattern, but the alleged culprit, Adolf Beck, was already in jail, awaiting sentencing. The inspector went to the new prisoner's cell. It held a grey-haired man, approximately of Beck's height, with certain features which made him resemble Beck. This man also had a scar on the right side of his neck, as Ottilie Messenger remembered. The prisoner had given his name as William Thomas, but the inspector was convinced that he was John Smith, and he informed Scotland Yard. Three of the five women who identified Beck in his second trial were brought in to confront Thomas, and they quickly identified him as a swindler. The other two had gone abroad, and thus were not present. Other women were brought in as well, who also admitted their error in identifying Beck. When the man who had been John Smith's landlord in 1877 identified Thomas as his former tenant, the prisoner confessed his crimes. William Thomas turned out to be much an alias as John Smith had been and he had two other aliases as well, William Wyatt and William Weiss. His true identity was Wilhelm Meyer, born in Vienna and graduated from the University of Vienna. He studied leprosy in the Hawaiian Islands under Father Joseph Damien. He later became surgeon to the King of Hawaii and was engaged in growing coffee and in various other businesses in the United States, even set up practice as a physician in Adelaide before moving to London. Like Beck, apparently he'd fallen on hard times when staying there and turned to preying on women through fraud. When Beck was sent to prison in his place, Meyer had gone back to the United States and did not come back until 1903. When he thought Beck had served out his sentence, he resumed swindling until he was finally arrested. When brought to trial on the 15th of September, Meyer pleaded guilty to all the offences and was jailed for five years. Adolf Beck was given a free pardon by the King on the 29th of July 1904 and in compensation for his false imprisonment was awarded £2,000, later raised to £5,000 due to public clamour. This is about £300,000 today.
A committee of inquiry was established, headed by the Master of the Rolls, Sir Richard Hen Collins. It heard evidence from all those involved in the case, including Horace Avery and Sir Forrest Fulton. In its report, it concluded that Adolf Beck should not have been convicted in the first place due to the many errors made by the prosecution in presenting its case. The committee also chastised Judge Fulton in his conduct in the case, as he should have given more consideration to the 1877 case, and more so because of his involvement in the 1877 case, which served to prejudice the proceedings against Beck. Furthermore, it criticised the Home Office for its indifference in acting on the case, despite the fact that it had known since 1898 that Beck and Smith were not the same man. Instead, it sought to preserve the credibility of the judiciary rather than admit or correct its mistakes. It also stated that the omission of the prison authorities to state the fact of Smith's circumcision and the records of 1877 and 1881 was the primary cause of the miscarriage of justice. As a direct result of this case, important reforms resulted, including the creation of the Court of Criminal Appeal. The case is still cited by judges in Commonwealth countries as a glaring example of how inaccurate eyewitness identification can be and the extreme care in which juries must regard evidence of this kind. As for Adolf Beck, his exoneration brought him little consolation. He died, a broken man, of pleurisy and bronchitis, in Middlesex Hospital in December 1909. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I hope you enjoyed this one and hope you enjoy more cases that change the law in the future. As always, if you haven't already, leave a review, follow me on Twitter, and till next time, bye bye.